Thank you for tuning in to this edition of Kingsway Podcast from Pastor Sean. You are about to hear a message from a recent Sunday service. We consider it a privilege to be on a spiritual journey with you. So take a few moments with us and allow God to inspire you today. I spent a lot of time in the Word preparing for this message, which is a series of messages. And Bill was helping me these last couple weeks try to bring it to bear. We've been preaching about holiness. I'm preaching about holiness. Here's a picture. You've seen this picture before. I love using this picture. It's a picture of the tabernacle. It's an augmented reality. It's not really the tabernacle. It's what we envision it to be looked like if it was made in in modern day. This is what you would see. And you can actually go to Israel and you can wear those VR glasses and you can go into old temples and see something that looks like this where you see the incense and the candles and the the, uh, ashes and and the curtains. It's where the Holy of Holies was, the presence of God. It's where the Ark of God, the Ark of the Covenant stood behind those veil, and that's where God's presence was. And where his presence was, favor and blessing, and the nations were blessed because of it. And so we began this story and this, this lesson around holiness and righteousness. And there are these big words in Christianity that we use a lot, like holiness and righteousness and, and sanctification, and they can get somewhat confusing. We wonder, they really impact my life. Does it matter? Well, let me tell you something. If you didn't understand what those words meant and you walked into that place, you were in jeopardy. If you attempted to go behind that veil, not understanding holiness, righteousness, sanctification, you would die, instantly fall to your death. These are important subjects. Today in charismatic worlds and circles that we live in, in Pentecostal circles, we preach about love and grace and mercy, and those things are extremely important. Our relationship with Christ should be paramount. But in that, we somehow have forgotten how we got there. Our church is part of a movement called the International Pentecostal Holiness. And I question if we know what Two of those three words mean. International, I think we got down. The other two are a little bit challenging. And I've been talking to our leadership this year, and I said, we have to get a hold of what some of our roots are and explain this to our new church. Because some of you are baby Christians. Some of you are new Christians. Some of you have forgotten where we have come from. This church has been around for almost 100 years. And these topics are what we are based on. Amen? So Bill went and he tried to explain holiness and and one time I tried to explain this picture and I put up some words. I don't know if you remember the words I put up. It was a couple weeks ago when I was preaching, maybe a month ago when I was preaching about uh, giving and I put up these words on the screen. Sacred Summit. Now when I put it up, you all laughed at me because it didn't say Sacred Summit. When I wrote it on my computer and I put it up on there, it said Scared Summit. In other words, I couldn't spell it right. You know, my mind just typed out what it was. My eyes saw one thing. Maybe I'm dyslexic. I don't know. But, but my point is, I didn't even notice. You guys noticed it right away. It doesn't say sacred. It says scared. Of course, I changed it, and it now says sacred summit. And, and the context of that message was trying to talk about the, the, the moment that we are offering something to God is a sacred moment. But as sacred as that moment is, is the moment right before that when we choose to offer something to God. 
That there's a, a summit in heaven where the angels collide and, and they, begin, they begin to rejoice that something really important is about to happen. We are about to change someone's life with our offering. That's a sacred summit. And so I put these words up and I realized the reason why I probably misspelled it is because I don't use this word very often. I haven't used this word maybe a hundred times in my life. Probably not even that. Scared, now that's a word I know. I know that word. I'm a human being. I feel fear, scared all the time. But sacred, you see, sacred is not a word. So it's been dwelling on me ever since that message. Why did I not see that? Why did I make that mistake? Was it really a big deal? What is it about sacred that I don't know? So I began to study the word of God. I began to go on this hunt to understand the art of sacredness. I came across the pastor, thank God for pastors. I came across the pastor who spent his life studying this. He's a celebrity pastor. You may have heard of him, you may not. Somebody in the church actually gave me a book from this pastor. His name is Francis Chan. And in this book, he begins to explore what it means to be sacred. And he has put me on a journey that I'm going to share with you these next couple weeks. And it's part of this, this holiness series that we're doing. Because the first question I ask you is, what is sacred? What does it mean? And what's the difference between that and what we've been talking about, holiness? What is, isn't holy and sacred, aren't they interchangeable? Well, it's interesting. I think, I think we use them interchangeably. We, we, we sometimes say the Bible is holy and the Bible is sacred. God is holy. He is sacred. But when you really think about it and you study it, it becomes a little more obvious. You see, holiness is something that generally is ascribed to a person. You can be holy. God is holy. Sacred is different. You see, when we think about holiness, and, and Bill's been teaching it, and I hope you got this from Bill's message, I hope you got this, that God calls us to be holy, but it's impossible for us to be holy. We cannot be holy because we are not righteous. These are big words, but let me break it down real simple. We aren't righteous because we're sinners. And no matter what you do, no matter what you say, you will still be a sinner, which means you won't be righteous, which means you can't be holy. But the Bible says unless we're holy, we can't see God. So what's the problem? It's a real big problem. So God says he gives us his righteousness. As if it's something that we put on, we wear it, we cloak ourselves in his righteousness so he can't see our unrighteousness, he only sees his righteousness. It is something that comes from God. And that is what it means to be sacred. When God gives you something, when God anoints something, when God separates something out for his purpose, it is sacred. Things, places, Rituals, objects are sacred, but he is holy, and he gives us the sacred. But I believe in today's church, I believe in my own life, I have dismissed it altogether. So this isn't one of those fun, happy-go-lucky sermons where I put lots of videos and music and color commentary and jokes. This is more of a serious one because I really want you to understand what is sacred, you know, we think about, when I think about that word, and I, I look at this picture even, you know, many of you, you've seen vigils, right? You've seen, you've, you maybe have been into a Catholic mass before, or a church that has a candlelight vigil, where people light the candles, you say, ah, that's probably sacred. And it's interesting to me, 
Uh, Bridget and I, we went on a, we've been house hunting forever, it seems like. Now, we've currently moved into our new home. But in the process of house hunting, we visited lots of homes. You have to visit homes when you do house hunting. And when you visit homes, you're walking to somebody else's life. And a lot of those lives we walked into are people who observe and celebrate and, and worship other gods, other religions. And we can walk into their homes and immediately see from the way they've organized their home what they believe is sacred. I've walked into homes where I've seen Muslims who have set up sacred areas to pray so they can face their God. I've walked into uh, Buddhist homes where they have entire shrines set up to meditate, a sacred area of their home. We can kind of envision what it is to be sacred. I bet you, you think the church is sacred. It's why we say, oh, we probably shouldn't run around in the sanctuary. We shouldn't... Uh, you know, goof off or, or act silly in the sanctuary. It's a sacred place. We shouldn't, we shouldn't bring food in the sanctuary. It's sacred. We have this idea of it. It's in our DNA. We're just not real sure what it means or at least what it means to us. God has sacred things. I just told you, righteousness is something he gives us that is sacred. But anything he gives, his blessings are sacred. His favor is sacred. His temple is sacred. His church is sacred. Do you know the Bible says our worship is to be sacred. Our prayers are to be sacred. But what does that mean if we don't understand what it means? So I ask you today, what do you keep sacred? What do you in your life hold as sacred? So in an attempt to define this, an attempt for you to evaluate your own life, let me give you some examples. Generally, when we hold something sacred or in Scripture when we hold, someone sac- when we hold something sacred, that means we have a very high respect for it. We have a reverence, a priority reverence for it. It means that we are careful with it, cautious with what we do with it, who's around it, cautious with how we use it, how we interact with it. If you use that analogy and look at the general American's life, I would tell you there's not much we keep sacred. In fact, anything we humans get our hands on to, we generally pollute and contaminate. If we were to keep something sacred in our lives, it would probably be a bad thing. It wouldn't be a godly thing. It would be something we've risen up as an idol, like a home or a job or a car where no one can touch and, and no one can use and, and only we can appreciate and we protect it and we, we're cautious with it. Maybe. I looked at my own life. I said, what do I hold sacred in my life? What is it in my life? You know, some people hold their job sacred, and and maybe there are times where I prioritize my job over other things, but priority is not having to do with it being sacred. Sacrifice. Scripture talks about sacrifice, so I start saying, well, if something is sacred, there must be sacrifices in order to keep it sacred, and there are sacrifices I make for work, but no, no, you know, there are times I go to work and I do not give it my best. There are times I go to work and I do not want to be there. There are times I go to work and I say things I shouldn't say. If I acted that way in the Holy of Holies, I'd be struck dead. So certainly it's not work I keep sacred. Oh, I know what it is. I know. It's my spouse, right? It's my wife, my relationship, my marriage, or or my children. I keep them sacred, right? Set apart. I protect them. I'm cautious with them, right? I respect them. They're sacred. Well, 
Sacred. Well, let's see. Well, it probably doesn't look too sacred when I'm screaming and yelling at them when I'm angry, when I'm saying things that I probably shouldn't say to my family or to my wife or around them. And as a human being, it's inevitable. Those things happen even to me as a pastor. Yes, I scream and yell and raise my voice and say stupid things that I have to apologize for. Well, if that's the case, I must not be treating them as sacred as I think, right? Well, you could look at Saturdays. See, Saturdays, my, my family knows Saturday. If, if there's one thing I probably keep sacred, it's probably Saturdays because Saturdays is the time where everything comes to a head. My whole week is effectively over. All my preparation leads to Saturday, and I try to dump everything I can into making sure I'm well prepared for Sunday on Saturday. So I'm cautious with what I do on Saturday, what plans I make on Saturday, what my time and my schedule is, what I eat, what I watch, what I listen to. So do I keep Saturdays sacred? Well, you'd think, but I tell you, there's lots of things that happen on Saturdays I wish they didn't. And ultimately, I have to go take care of those things. So it's not Saturdays. Prayer, prayer. I must keep prayer sacred, right? I mean, I'm a pastor. Of course I keep prayers. I pray every day. I pray five times a day. I pray without ceasing. I don't even go to work. I just pray, right? No, that's not the case. There are days that go by where my prayers are not good, where my angry prayers get in the way of what God wants to say to me. There are prayers I go into with my own opinions and my own plans, and I ask God to do it my way. If you do that in the Holy of Holies, I would drop dead. Okay, so let's hit the big one. Clearly, clearly the Word of God is sacred, right? The Word of God, Jesus Christ, maybe, and I have to study some more, but there are at least two things in the Bible that are called both holy and sacred. The Word of God, our Bibles, we keep them sacred, right? I mean, we, we, we respect them. We give them reverence. We sometimes stand up in church when we read the Word. Where do you keep your Bible all week? Sometimes my Bible doesn't make it home before it's on the floor of my car. Sometimes my kids take it to my room. It gets stuffed under other books. I got so many Bibles at home, I don't even know what half of them are. I'm sure you do too. Your Bible get dirty. Your Bible, you put stuff on it sometimes. Does it ever get stepped on? Your kids ever drop it? The page ever get crinkled? Now, you may laugh at these type of analogies, but you have to understand, back in that time, if those things were to happen in the Holy of Holies, you would drop dead. So I think it's safe to say we have no clue what it means to hold something sacred. And I'm a pastor. So let's take a look. Let me introduce you to a man, a very famous man, a big man, a stoic man, a man when you looked at him, you saw regal nobility. You saw a man with power and strength. You saw a man that looked like a leader, should be a leader, and was a leader. His name was King Saul. The only problem was he wasn't a leader. You look through Scripture and you try to understand what was his problem. And as I look through Scripture, I came to the conclusion this man had a problem with understanding. He had a problem with understanding obedience. And his problem with obedience was because of this exact topic I'm talking about. He didn't have the patience nor the knowledge for the sacred. See, he was a, the first appointed king by God. In other words, all the kings before were appointed through the lineage and they were appointed by the men around them. And then there was this whole time where the temple got destroyed and, and judges ruled all of Israel. And there was a really important judge, a prophet. His name was Samuel. And then he was wonderful, and he was amazing, and then he retired, and there was nobody to take his place. And the Israelites demanded a king because all the territories around them, all the lands had kings, and they wanted somebody that could stand up to the kings around them. So God 
anointed Saul. And Saul mounted an attack against his enemies, which at the time were the Philistines. And you know this, the greatest of all the Philistines, or at least the biggest one, was Goliath, right? And you know the whole story about David and Goliath, and that was King Saul's time. Anyway, King Saul mounted an attack against the Philistines, and he triumphed. Only problem was, Philistines got a little mad. Well, they got a lot mad, and they gathered all their troops up, and they said, we're going to go get King Saul and his people. There's a movie, I have to take a second here, there is a movie that came out, I, I recently watched it, I've been traveling 15, 20 hours on planes this week, and so I had some extra time, and so I wanted to watch this movie. I don't know if you've seen it. The movie's called 12 Strong. Have you seen this movie? Not enough of you have seen this movie. You need to take a look at this movie. This is a movie, uh, it's got some famous celebrities in it. It's about the 9-11 conflict and what ensued afterwards in Afghanistan. It's about the 12 men who were picked to head up an assault against Al-Qaeda, And when they got there, they realized they were in grave trouble because the lands they were in were not normal domestic lands. These foreign lands were deserts and mountains, and they were hard to walk on and hard to live on, hard to get around on, and they need to, in fact, use horses to move around. And that's what the whole premise of the story is about. You should watch. It's a fascinating show, almost a documentary of what took place, a true story, nonfiction, 12 strong. Anyway, that is the time, and this is the setting that King Saul was in. He was in this desert with caves, and as the Philistines came upon them, all his men began to run and and run away because they were scared to death of what the Philistines were going to do. They were going to overpower them. And so he's at a place called Gigal, and I want to read you today what happened there. It says, meanwhile, Saul stayed at Gigal, and his men were trembling with fear. Say, trembling with fear. Saul waited there seven days for Samuel, as Samuel had instructed him earlier, but Samuel did not come. You see, Samuel had told them, anointed them, and said God would help them be successful. Go here, fight the battle, kill the Philistines, wait seven days for me, and I will come and anoint you, and I will make a sacrifice. He did that. So far, everything went as planned. Now he's sitting there. Seven days have passed. There's no Samuel. He doesn't know what to do, and the Philistines are coming, and it says right here, Saul realized that his troops were rapidly slipping away. Nothing good can happen when we tremble with fear. When we become fearful in the eyes of our enemy, we are losing our ground. And what happens then is we begin to look no longer at God or his plan. We look at ourselves and our resources. We look at our own lives and say, what can we do to get out of this problem? And then in his case, which happens mostly, just like Matt preached, just like he shared, you look at your own resources, your bank account, your money, your energy, your health, and you say, it's slipping away. And when it slips away, you have nothing, or you feel like you're about to have nothing, you do some really stupid things. Thank God for Matt getting up and sharing his testimony that he didn't do any stupid things. He bowed before the God of the Holy of Holies and said, help me, and God showed you over and over again how he did. Now that's a leader, Matt. That's a husband, Matt. That's a father, Matt. King Saul would learn a lot from you because that's not what King Saul did, and he was supposed to be a mighty man. They wrote a whole book about him. Look what he did. He said, ah, He demanded, bring me the burnt peace offerings right now. And Saul sacrificed the burnt offering himself, say himself. Just as Saul was finishing with the burnt offering, Samuel arrived exactly at the moment he did it. He just finished it. Samuel arrives. Saul went out to meet him and welcome him. But Samuel said, what is this you have done? 
I've preached this before. You've heard me teach it to you before. Back in those days, there were kings who had authority, and there were priests who did sacrifices and offerings. You could not, as a king, be a priest, or as a priest, be a king. In this case, Saul took matters in his own hands and made the sacrifice. And Samuel came and said, what is this you have done? And look what it says. Saul replied, I saw my men scattering, and you didn't arrive when you said you would. Mm, now we're getting to the heart of the matter. How many of you have prayed this prayer? Oh, God, I know you're awesome. I know you're good. I know you're going to help me. But you ain't showing up. You ain't doing what you said you'd do. I prayed ten times and nothing happened. I'm going to take care of this myself, Lord. Look, something like that. That's what's happening here. It's called an excuse. Don't make excuses. Make some decisions. It says, and the Philistines were at Michmash, ready for battle. So I said, I said, he says to Sarah, the Philistines are ready to march against us at Gilgal. I haven't even asked for the Lord's help. So I felt compelled to offer my burnt offering myself before you came. Now, when you read this, in my first read of this, why is this a bad thing? This seems like a good thing. I want to be a king. I want to be a father. I want to be a husband. I say, Lord, you know, I forgot to ask for your blessing, so I'm going to go through the ritual of asking for your blessing because I want your blessing. I don't want my people to die. This seems like a good thing. He has special circumstances. So he says he's going to explain away why he did what he was not supposed to do. You see, just a few chapters earlier, God explained to him that you must wait for Samuel to do this. It is a priest's job, not a king. But because of the delay, he got all uptight, all worried. Let me explain something right here. Delays are part of God's plan. Listen to it very carefully. Delays are part of God's plan. Yes, God does things immediately, all the time. He heals people immediately. He saves immediately. He offers his Holy Spirit immediately. But many times, God is offering a delay. Why? I don't know. Sometimes to test us. Why? Because spiritual things are happening in unknown places. I don't know. I know this. My wife and my daughter screamed and yelled at each other one day, and we're fighting and trying to get out of the house. Now they're going to be late. Three minutes later, they get in the car screaming and yelling. They drive down the intersection, and two minutes prior, there was a major car accident at that intersection. Delays are part of God's plan. They are not meant to be an excuse for you to do your own thing. Samuel then says, how foolish. You have not kept the command. It's very simple, church. We as Americans, we as human beings, we as men and women, we can boil down our decisions, our poor ones. We can boil down the circumstances of those poor decisions. We can boil down the strife in our life to usually one thing, not following God's command. You fool, he says. Had you had kept the Lord's command, the Lord would have established your kingdom of Israel forever. But now your kingdom must end because you have not kept the Lord's command. Heavenly Father, I pray in this moment, in this instant, that you would allow the word of God to get deep down in their soil. We ain't done yet. We're just getting started. And Father God, I know you have something to share with us, show us, demonstrate to us, teach us, and you want it to profit and give good fruit. So Father God, in Jesus' name, make it happen. That church says? Amen. Amen. The way you do things matters.
The way you do things matters. You can't go about your life thinking that, oh, because I have good intentions, I'm going to go about doing it my way. I'm going to lie to my wife. I'm going to cheat my job. I'm going to do this at church. God will understand. Or I'm going to do it in God's name. The way you do things matters. In this case, he's making a sacrifice to God. And you know what? We learned in the scripture, not all sacrifices are godly. Now, how many sacrifices you make in your life? Probably a lot. You think of all the areas you're sacrificing, your work, your family, your home, and you mean, well, I make these sacrifices, God, you must bless me, right? Oh, I can't go to church, I have to work, I can't do this, I can't worship, I can't pray, I have to work. God, you understand my sacrifices. Or, or well, I give $20 when I get to church. I make a sacrifice, God understands that. He's going to honor that. It doesn't matter how much money you give at church. It matters the sacrifice you make in here, church. The way you go about it matters. Fasting. Well, you know, I don't drink coffee anymore. I don't watch this TV show anymore. God must understand. He, he, these sacrifices, they all matter to God. Really? What are you doing with that extra time? What are you doing with that extra money? The way you do things matters. Let's look at scripture here. I'm going to repeat the same scripture. And Saul sacrificed the burnt offering himself. In Deuteronomy chapter 12, I don't have time to get into it. Go look. Write it down in your notes. Deuteronomy chapter 12. We'll get to it later in this series. Deuteronomy chapter 12 gives painstaking detail of how you are to offer a sacrifice to God. Saul knew it, didn't follow it. Just a couple chapters earlier, Samuel chapter 10, Samuel said, I will give the sacrifice. I'm a Levite. I will do it the proper way. Wait for me seven days and I will do it. And yet he did it his own way, with his own hands. He took a good thing, and he did it the wrong way, and made it a bad thing. He took a good thing, a godly thing, he turned it into a bad thing. So bad, in fact, that God took his entire kingdom away from him. So I felt compelled to offer the burnt offering myself before you came, Samuel. He lacked two things. Saul lacked patience and knowledge. I am trying as slow as I can, as carefully as I can, to give you the knowledge and hopefully the patience to understand what God is trying to say to us as a church and us as a community of believers. It is important because things get very difficult, Matt, when we feel our life slipping away. Matt, your testimony could not be more appropriate. I had no idea what he was going to say today. He asked for a time to speak his testimony, and yet his testimony is exactly, it is literally a Bible story that could be written in the Bible and juxtaposed with this story of how to do things right versus how to do things wrong. There is a right way, and there is a wrong way. And the, the key to understanding what is sacred is understanding that we, we, me, you, everyone in here, we are not the center of our solutions. God wants to replace you from the center of your solution. He has things predestined. He has things dedicated to his solution. And it's not you in your own life. He wants to be the center of your solution. And so he has set up certain rules. 
He has set up certain laws for us to obey, for us to make sure that we put him at the center of our solution, like prayer, like worship, like preaching, etc., etc., etc. The method we use is as important as the goal itself. Set up a godly goal. God gives you a call and gives you a vision at home, at work, in your family, in relationships, at school. The goals that you set up for yourself may, in fact, be godly. The method you use to attain that goal is as important as the goal itself. But yet, we put ourselves at the center of the solution. When we start encountering problems on our path, on our journey, we're having a problem at work. You know what we're going to do? We're going we're to change jobs. We have a problem in our relationships. We're going to exit out of the relationship. Problem with our spouses. I'll find another one. Problem with our homes, our neighborhood, our neighbors. I'll go buy a new one. My car, my check engine light went on. Problem with the car. Go get a new one. Look, I'm a victim of this as much as anyone else. We see problems. We want to fix them because we think we somehow have some authority or power to do so. And yet God wants to be at the center of your solution. Let's look at this next guy. This guy you should know. Surely King David got it right. Surely King David put God at the center of his solutions. He's a man after his own heart, the Bible says. David was a younger guy. David, you know, he came right after Saul. There was King Saul. King Saul failed. How did he fail? I just showed you. And then there was David. David was anointed also by Samuel. Restored the line of Judah. David came from the line of Judah, who's who Christ came from. Clearly, David got it right. He was the best king of all kings. Surely he understands what it means to be holy. Surely he understands what it means to honor and keep things sacred. Right? It's King David. So let's take a look at his rule. See? So King David, he was also in a conflict with the Philistines. In fact, when he got ruled, remember the whole David and Goliath thing? He took down Goliath, sure, but there was 30,000 more Philistines. And you know what they ended up doing? They defeated some of Jerusalem, and they took that Ark of the Covenant, you know, the one behind the Holy of Holies. They took it. They straight took it from the Israelites. The most prized possession, the most sacred of all sacred things in the Jewish faith was the Ark of God, and the Philistines took it. Why did they take it? Because they knew that God's favor, his presence, his glory, his blessing would follow it wherever it went. They didn't care if it was from a foreign God. They wanted it, and so they took it. And it began to bless them. Bring Christ into any circle you are in, regardless of the situation, and it will be blessed. But oftentimes we're too nervous and shy to do so. Bring Christ into any circle you're in, social or otherwise, and it will be blessed. So the Philistines were blessed. David says, I'm not going to have this on my watch. I'm going to get my, this sound familiar? I'm going to get my people and I'm going to go attack the Philistines. So he did. He went and he attacked them and he took out an outpost and it was in 2 Samuel chapter 6. That's where we're going to read from in a second here. That's what happened. And guess what happened after that? The Philistines grouped all together and said, we're going to come after you. This sound familiar? David then obeys the Lord, does what he says, mounts an attack and destroys the Philistines, goes in, finds the Ark of the Covenant and says, I'm taking you home with me. I'm going to take you back to Jerusalem, back to the motherland, and a whole nation will be blessed because you are sacred. So he got excited. 
got passionate, got enthusiastic. He said, let's take the ark back. Let's look what happens. 2 Samuel chapter 6, verse 6. They loaded the ark on a new cart. He took his two biggest men, Ohio and, and Uzzah, and he had them pull the cart, take it all the way to Jerusalem. Got about halfway there. The oxen stumbled, and Uzzah reached out his hand and steadied the ark of God. Uzzah was trying to do something good, but he did it the wrong way. We must understand what God's ways are in order to do it his way. The method we use as is important as the goal itself. Uzzah didn't want the ark to fall into the ground. You know what his name means? I looked it up. I was shocked to find out. It, it didn't surprise me after I read it. Uzzah's name means literally strength or the strong one. He's the big guy in church. He's like the Brian. Carry this, Brian. Make it happen. Okay, I got it. I'll handle it. It's moving. Don't worry. I'll take care of it. He's using what God has given him, his strength to, to balance the ark. Literally, he saw things slipping away, slipping through his fingers. And so literally, he took things in his own hands. Guess what happened? Some of you know, if you, ha if you don't know what's about to happen, I'm going to freak you out. Then the Lord's anger was so aroused against Uzzah that God struck him dead because of this. In David's enthusiasm to follow God, to bring his presence back to the church, David was so excited. He was so passionate. He was so impatient. He was so without knowledge that he cost a man's life. They rushed into the presence of God. And Uzzah paid the price. He was not patient. He lacked understanding, both Uzzah and David. And to make sure the point is really clear, God follows it up with this part of the verse. And Uzzah died right there beside the ark of God. This wasn't one of those, oh, it's coincidental, he got the flu later on, you know. He stepped on a scorpion. No, God wanted to make it clear he holds the sacred above all else, and you respect his law or suffer the consequence. Now, it may sound, wow, Sean, what are you telling me here? What are you telling me here? Okay, I'll make it really simple. Let me not use Bible words. Let me use my words. There are two ways, God's way and the wrong way. The method we use is as important as the goal itself. Take a look now at Pastor Bill's messages over the last couple of weeks. And you could see he was saying it over and over and over again. This is no more clear than looking at purity, sexual purity. If you don't achieve the goal the way God has laid it out, you will go about it the wrong way. And there are a number of consequences to pay. I got to say this, and... And look, I haven't preached in a while, so I'm, I'm just going to let it go here for a second because i got to get these out of my system. God has taught me something these last couple of weeks, months even. And when I studied these scriptures, it became more obvious to me than any other time. We have free will. When Jesus Christ came and he gave his life for us, he gave us the option 
to have a choice to choose him or not, to choose grace and mercy, to choose the sacred that we can clothe ourselves in his righteousness or live a life of sin. It's a choice that we were given, the same choice Adam and Eve were given. And frankly, some of you, depending on your education, depending on your your success, depending on your environment, depending on how you were raised, you may have more options than other people. And you may feel as though the more success and the more achievement you make in this world, the more options you will have. And you may conclude that that is a positive thing because I have free will and the more options, the better. I'm here to tell you that you may have many options and many choices to make. But one choice you cannot make is what the consequences are of a bad one. The consequences of a bad choice are already set in stone. God has laid them out. You do not have a choice of what the consequences are. And if you are Saul or you are David and you did not study what the consequences are, then you will pay the price. Even great men who will lose a kingdom or lose one of their best friends. Do you think it's important to understand what God's laws are to understand why and what the sacred is? I think so. I think so. The story doesn't end there. Uzzah dies, and then the Ark of the Covenant, you know, it's on a cart. I assume because Uzzah put his hand on it, it didn't fall off. Maybe it fell off. The Bible doesn't say. So there they are in this neighborhood with the ark sitting and everybody dumbfounded looking at Uzzah. It doesn't say exactly what happened, but we knew they took care of Uzzah's body. They had to bury him. They had to deal with him. But David was so confounded, confused, angry, frustrated. But he also was reverent. And he said, um, yeah, the ark is uh, yeah, not to be messed with. Don't touch it, please. Stay away from it, please. I wish I could get into the details. The Philistines didn't know the laws. They didn't understand it. They weren't taught it. I don't know how the Philistines got it out of the Jewish camp They on their cart without dying, but somehow they did. Who knows? Maybe a bunch of Philistines died on the way. I don't know, but they finally got it to Philistine. David did know. He knew exactly what to do, but he must have forgotten because he didn't do it the right way. So for three months, he let the ark stay there. You know what they did? There was a house, one of his friends. They were on the way back to Jerusalem. They were in Jewish country. Obed was there. He said, let's move the ark to Obed's house. <laughs> Obed, come get the ark. Move it into your house. Obed's like, oh, yeah, I'll take you. I mean, think about this. God's presence being moved to the temple of Jerusalem. It doesn't make it there. It makes it to some guy's house. He's like, sure, bring it into my house. For three months, the presence of the Lord and the Ark of the Covenant stayed at Obed's house. A message got back to David. You know what they said? They said, David, David, you must hear what's happened. The Lord has blessed Obed's household and everything in it because of the Ark of God. The presence of God is so important, church. The presence of God is so important. He knew it was important. David knew it was important. Obed knew it was important. And now they're seeing the blessing. Anywhere the presence of God is, there is his blessing. Don't you want God's blessing in your home today? Don't you want God's blessing raining down on your home and your neighborhood and your family? Don't you want God's presence to stay there and no one to be hurt, but you want to see blessing of your whole household and everything in it because of it? 
Well, then you must examine what we're doing. He began to examine what he was doing. He looked and said, oh my goodness, the Bible says don't do it this way. What was I thinking? He turned back to Numbers chapter 4. I don't know if it was called Numbers chapter 4 back then. I don't know what they called it. The Talmud. So he went back and he's starting to look at it. And he goes, oh no. Oh my goodness. Let's see. Uh, The blessings is sacred. The favor of God is sacred. The temple is sacred. God has sacred objects. How do I deal with sacred objects? He goes and he looks. And there it's spelled out in great, great, great detail. Which we'll get into in another sermon. And and you should go look at it. Take a look at it. Numbers chapter 4. And so... He realizes he's got to do it the right way. So he brings the priests in, the Levi priests. He dresses them up in garments. They put on the righteousness of God. They begin to cleanse themselves and sanctify themselves. Then they make the burnt offerings. They do all the things they're supposed to do. They carry it on rods like they're supposed to. And they carry it out of Obed's house. Guess what happens? Now before I tell you what happens, I was thinking about this during worship. And I don't know how the thought's going to come out because it's just processed it. I haven't wrote it down or spoke it. But when you go back and look at this story before I read to you what just happens, if I go back and look, let me see here. Do I even have it? my Bible here? Oh, yeah. I got my Bible. Second uh, Samuel chapter 6. Let's see. Um, it's verse, let's see. Here it is. Uh, uh, verse four, 5. So the first time before Uzzah died, they're bringing the ark out. You know what he did? He began to worship. David did. David was the lead musician. He began to worship the cymbals and the guitars and all the instruments, the harp. He began to worship because the presence of God was moving. He wanted to worship. So he did this, but it all went sour. It went south real quick because something they didn't do right. So this time, this time, he began to do it right. This time, he followed the laws. He did everything he's supposed to do. He saw that God was blessing Obed's house, and he knew he didn't want the blessing to stay just in Obed's house, but he wanted the whole nation to have it. He needed to get to Jerusalem, so he began to do things the right way. And look what happened. They began to move. How far did they get? You can look in your scripture. Maybe turn to your Bible. It's verse 13. I'm going to share it with you right here. It says, After the men who were carrying the ark of the Lord had gone six Steps. Six steps. They wanted to go to Jerusalem. They were only about halfway there. They didn't get very far. You see, this time, this time, they weren't rushing it. This time, they were taking their time. This time, they understood what was going on. Six steps, and David sacrificed a bull and a fatted calf. He began to worship God. He said, and David danced before the Lord. What does that say there? What does that say? With all his might. Say that with me. With all his might. The Bible literally says in in certain translations that he was so excited he would flail his arms and his legs. He was dancing with all his might and shouts of joy for the blowing of the ram's horn. What is taking place here, church? Let me explain what is taking place. Finally, finally, it took all of this, everything that happened to Saul, everything that happened to Uzzah, everything that happened to the Philistines, it took all of this for King David to finally understand, to take time, go back and read God's word, understand what his law was, and begin to apply it. He took the time. He now gained the knowledge. And then what he did, then he was patient. He began to work on God's presence. And what he realized when being patient is that he didn't have to rush God's presence He didn't have to do it in his timing. He didn't have to do it the way he wanted to do it. He was going to do it the way God intended to happen. 
And so he didn't get to Jerusalem. He got six steps. And he began to realize the presence of the Lord is sacred. God wasn't going to drop them all dead, but was going to follow them anywhere they go. In fact, he learned that we weren't moving God. God was moving them. And they made it to Jerusalem. Read. And you can see all of the exploits of David. And they don't know. The Bible doesn't say. Some believers believe because they had so many sacrifices there that every six steps they began to worship God. We don't know, but here's what we do know. When they got to Jerusalem and they entered the city, Though all the people began to see the presence of the God enter into the kingdom and see David shouting, see David dancing, see David playing the ram's horn. You know, there are times when God's presence tells us to be quiet and still and to know that he is there. But if you think that's how God moves, you are sorely mistaken. Because when God moves, let me tell you what happens. The King of kings, the Lord of lords, begins to dance with all of his might, the Bible says. It says this King David, which was the greatest of all kings, began to flail his arms and his legs and dance with all of his might to Jerusalem. And on top of that, guess what he did? He pulled out a ram's horn. And if you hadn't heard a ram's horn before, I'll tell you, it's loud. It's really, really loud. In fact, if you stand next to it, you will be deafened. He took out the ram's horn and blowed it as loud as he could. And he said, will the heavens hear me? Here comes your presence, Jerusalem. God is with me. Therefore, no one can be against me. There comes a time where we need to worship God with all of our heart, soul, and mind. There comes a time where you need to use all of your might. And when that time is, is when the presence of God is moving. You don't have a choice of when that happens. He chooses, church. And I tell you this, if you want to see God move, you must first understand what is sacred? This scripture right here has been used for lots of different scenarios in the church. The scenario I want to use right now, the concept I want to point out to you right now, is this was done in public, not in the privacy of his home, not in his living room, not in his prayer closet. This is public worship. And it can only be done when we come together in one heart, one mind, and one accord. We at Kingsway hope you enjoyed this message from Pastor Sean. It was not by chance you listened to it. God is speaking to you. Visit kingswaycc.org to find the podcast from Pastor Sean. We pray today that this somehow inspired you to draw closer to God and to connect with His people, His purpose, and His power. God bless you.